This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, so this morning, we're going to wrap up our uh, Old Testament Minor Prophet series in the book of Haggai that we're calling Renew. I chose this Minor Prophet this year because it's written largely to a dejected people. Right? They've returned from exile in Babylon filled with, with hope. Hope of, of life returning to normal, right? Back to the good old days, back to the, back to the glory days. They were going to rebuild the temple and God's presence would return. The kingdom of Israel would be restored to power and, and their king would reign once again from the throne of David. Nothing went the way that they hoped. And rather than flourishing as a nation and as a people, they were languishing. Languishing is just basically a fancy name for that blah feeling that we're all feeling. Uh, if you were to look up languishing in the dictionary, I think there would just be a picture of a calendar of 2021 in there. That's languishing. Psychologist Adam Green, he, he wrote a New York Times article uh, back in April about this, and he referred to languishing as this joyless, aimless feeling. This, this sense of stagnation and emptiness, and it feels as if you're just muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. Sound familiar? And he goes on to describe, uh, he describes mental health kind of as a, as a spectrum, and he says that languishing is that neglected middle child of mental health. Any middle children in the room today? Yeah, so you, you kind of can feel that, can't you? It's that void between depression and flourishing. It's the absence of well-being. You, you, you don't have the, the symptoms of mental illness, but you're by no means the picture of mental health either. And languishing, it dulls your motivation and it disrupts your ability to focus. I think languishing describes so accurately that feeling that Israel was feeling some 2,500 years ago. And I think it describes that feeling many of us are feeling today in this time. Until so God, he spoke to his people through his prophet Haggai, a divine word spoken through a human mouth. And the words that God spoke here in this fourth and final oracle were words of hope. I hope that Israel needed then, hope that I think we're in need of today. And so I want to close our time in the book of Haggai in this series with a sermon that we're calling Renewing Our Hope Right, renewing our hope, and we're going to be at the end of chapter 2 here in Haggai. What I want to see this morning, our big idea this morning, I want you to write this down if you're taking notes, it's that our renewed hope is found in who God is and what God will do. And our renewed hope is found in who God is and what God will do. And I want to read this oracle in its entirety, and as I do, I want you to pay attention and listen to what it is that makes this different from the first three. Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23 read, And the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, the very same day as the third oracle. And God said, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and the riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. And on that day, that future day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. I think we can, we can sense something's different about this. It, it feels different. 
feels different than the other three, and that's because it is different. There's, there's three differences I want to point out. Number one, the audience is different. Right? The audience is different. The first three oracles were addressed to the people as a whole, but this fourth is addressed to a specific singular person. Right? It's addressed to Zerubbabel, the, the Persian-appointed governor of Judah, the, the son of Sheatel, the grandson of Jehoiakim, the last king of Judah at the time of the exile, the last king of the line of David. And he was singled out, which means there must be, there must be something special about the role that he's going to play in all of this. But not only is the audience different, what we also see is that the, the tone of the oracle is different. The tone of God's word is different. Remember in the first three, in each of them, we saw God confront the people of something, right? And in each of the first three oracles, we saw that in the first, God confronted their misplaced priorities and ours as well, revealing how God was no longer at the top of the priority list as evidenced by the fact that they had spent all their time and money, they had invested all their energy and all their resources in rebuilding their own homes, while God's home, the, the temple, remained in ruins. And we saw and we talked about how we, we pursue what we prioritize, and when we prioritize our own lives as, as first and foremost. We deprioritize God in our lives. And rather than giving God our first fruits, we give God our leftovers. And I think we're all clear on my theology of leftovers at this point. Burn them, throw them away, do whatever. Just don't reheat them. In the second oracle, we saw God confront our unmet expectations, revealing how our, our past experiences shape our present expectations. And the people, they, they wanted to return to the past, back to the, the good old days, back to the glory days, but God was renewing them and leading them towards something new. And then last week in the third oracle, we saw God confront our spiritual drift, revealing how the world, it, it distracts our attention, it, it draws our affection away from God into other things. But not here. You don't see that in, in the fourth oracle. God's not confronting anything. His tone is different. But also the intended response of this oracle, I think, is different. Remember, God called his people to respond in a certain way, renewing something in the first three oracles. In the first, he, he called us to renew our priorities. Right, pursuing God and one another by prioritizing our time with God and one another. And, uh, and 69 of you so far, you, you made that commitment to renewing your pursuit of God and one another by filling out uh, that commitment card and checking off things that you were going to prioritize. By the way, side note, if you did that and you gave us your shirt size, the shirts are out behind the info desk you can pick up this morning. But in the second oracle, we saw God call us to renew our expectations Right, by allowing God's presence here among us and his promises made to us to renew our expectations of what lies ahead tomorrow. And last week in the third oracle, he called us to renew our pursuit of him, right, reflecting on our spiritual drift and those rumble strips that God's placed in our lives to draw us back to him, renewing our pursuit of God in response to God's pursuit of us. But not here. God's not calling us to anything. He's not calling us to do anything. There's nothing for us to do. His, the intended response of this oracle is different. And, and like, to be honest, I think we struggle with passages like this, don't we? we? We struggle with passages that don't have commands, that don't have imperatives, that don't tell us explicitly what to go do. We struggle to read them because we're like, what do I do with this? Like, what, what, what do you want me to do, God? It, as preachers, we struggle preaching these sometimes. 
You're like, is it even really a sermon if I don't give you three points on a slide at the end of the sermon of things to go do? But I think that mindset, when we sit down to read the Bible like that, I think it reveals something about what we think about this book. I think it reveals that we start to think it's all about me. And I think it reveals that we treat it as really nothing more than a self-help book written by God to me because it's about me. See, while Scripture, it was, it was given to us, it is not first and foremost about us, is it? Who's it about? It's about God. Jesus works in there. It reveals to us who God is, his nature and his character, and it reveals to us what God has, has done and what it is that he's promised to do, all things that flow from who he is. And here in the fourth oracle, rather than calling us to renew something, what we see is God actively renewing something within us, renewing our hope, not by telling us what to do, but by revealing to us what he will do and who he will do it through, all because of who he is, because our renewed hope is found in who God is and what God has promised to do. And so we see a couple of things in these last two oracles that help unveil some of this, that reveal some of this. And in this ne these next couple of verses, what we see is, is God, he reveals who he is by revealing what he will do. Right? He reveals who he is by revealing what he will do. Let's look here at verse 21 and 22. He, he says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders. And the horses and the riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his own brother. Now notice who's doing everything here and who's doing nothing here, right? God is the one doing everything. We're doing nothing. And look at what God does. There's four things that he says here. Number one, he's going he's to shake the heavens and the earth. And we saw that a couple weeks ago, didn't we, in the second oracle. And while we might think of shaking, right, like an, like an earthquake as bringing chaos and, and disorder, what he is in doing, what he's doing is in fact bringing about order to his creation by this. It, it is a sign of, of God's divine presence and intervention in the events of human history. And what he does, the second thing uh, we see is that he's going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. He is going to strip every nation of their political power. None will last into eternity. None will last on into the eschaton. Every human king will perish. Every kingdom built by human hands, including our own, will one day come to an end. And that's exactly what we saw last fall in Daniel, wasn't it? Where Daniel, he says in, in chapter 2, he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. To whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and season. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. But God not only would strip them of their political power, he would destroy their strength. He would destroy their military might with which they wielded their power over others, oppressing others, conquering others others. And number four, God's going to do this by overthrowing their chariots, overthrowing their riders, these symbols of their military might. And by his mighty hand and outstretched arm, the armies of the nations, he says they will turn on each other and they will fall. And by revealing to his people what it is that he would do, God was revealing an aspect of who he is. 
he, he was revealing that he is sovereign. That the creator over all creation. That he is the, the infinite, transcendent, sovereign God of the heavens. Sovereign over every king and every kingdom that has ever existed and ever will exist. And by his sovereign power, he removes kings and he sets up kings. And God, he's revealing that he has the power, that he has the ability to fulfill every promise that he has ever made to his people. See, by revealing who God is, by revealing what he would do, he was renewing the hope of his languishing people. Hope that he had not forgotten them or abandoned them. Hope that the chaos and the injustice and the oppression that so many were experiencing would not last forever. Hope that this promised kingdom of renewed peace would indeed one day come. Hope that nothing can stand the power of our sovereign, all-powerful God. Amen? It says in Psalm 47, 8, that God reigns over nations and he sits on his holy throne. And so in the midst of what Israel was experiencing, in the midst of what we're experiencing, God's, God's not anxiously pacing around, is he? No, God's calm patiently sitting, and he's in control, actively reigning. God's got this. But then in the last verse, what we see here is that God reveals another aspect of who he is by revealing who he will do this through, right? Who he's going to do this through reveals something else about God. Look at verse 23 here with me. He says, on that day, on that future day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And again, God's the one doing everything in this passage. And whereas before he was sharing what he was going to do in renewing his kingdom, here he shows who he's going to do it through by renewing his king. We see three things here. Number one, he says, I'm going to take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant. I'm going to take you. And notice here how Zerubbabel, he's no longer identified by his Persian-given title of governor of Judah, is he? No, he, he's now referred to by his God-given title of my servant. Servant, it's a, it's a title given to someone appointed by God for a particular task. It was applied historically to David most frequently. We see this in Psalm 78 where it says, God chose as his servant David and he took him from the sheepfolds. But it's also a title applied prophetically to a, a greater David who would be yet to come. And, and so by applying this title to, to Zerubbabel, who, who God had taken from among the remnant of the exiles that had returned, God was in fact connecting Zerubbabel to David. And he goes on to say, I will make you like a signet ring. Like God, he was going to forge Zerubbabel into something valuable, something new. And, and a signet ring was a, a symbol of authority or someone in power, worn either on a finger on their right hand or sometimes uh, worn around a, a chain around their neck. And, and it was used to authenticate documents uh, we got like VeriSign today on electronic documents. You had a ring back then, and, and you would press that ring in either wax or clay with your seal, sealing that document so that if it came, you know, kind of like when you buy something, if that says the seal's already open, don't, don't eat that food, because yeah, it's been sitting in the grocery store for a while. Somebody opened the pickle jar, took a pickle out, put the jar lid back on. 
You've done it. You know you have. I'm not the only one. I'm the only one? I'm going to go get some coffee. I'll be back in a little bit. Shaming. I thought this was supposed to be a sermon about hope. But the signet ring, it did that. It, it sealed the pickle jar back up. It, uh, it sealed the document. And it authorized this person who wore the ring. And what we see in Scripture is that God's kings over Israel, they were God's signet rings. They were symbols of God's authority, authenticating his rule over his people within his kingdom. But then we get to Jeremiah 22, and what we see is that God ripped the signet ring from the hand of Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jehoiakim, the king at the time of the exile, king of Judah, the last king from the line of David. And God, he said in Jeremiah 22, verse 30, he says, write this man down as childless, which is interesting because he had children. Write him down as childless, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Ouch. That's possibly the most devastating thing God could have said to his people. The most devastating thing he could have spoken. And you can just see the hope flying out of the balloon as it fluttered off. Because it appeared as though God was breaking the commandment that he had made with David, a, a, a covenant that he had spoken through the prophet Nathan back in 2 Samuel 7, a passage that our kids looked at downstairs a couple weeks ago, where God, he says to the prophet Nathan, he says when, to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as it would took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so imagine the hope that Haggai brought to his people. God was forging a new signet ring, one that he had taken away. This new ring worn by his newly chosen king because God declares, for I have chosen you, Zerubbabel. I have chosen you. And you know, I think chosen is a word that we struggle with. I think chosen is a word we don't always like. Uh, I think we like the TV show chosen, amen? Yeah, that's good. Uh, just not the word chosen especially when it comes to God's choosing. See, I, th I think our pushback on, on the use of that word throughout Scripture, I think it reveals something about us. I think, it, I think it reveals some of our pride. I think it reveals some of our arrogance. I think it reveals that because we want to believe that we're good enough. We want to believe that we are deserving. We want to believe that we merit being chosen, that God is simply responding to how good we are and the good that we have done. And yet that's not what we see throughout Scripture, is it? For example, God's choosing of Israel as his nation, as his children, it was of no doing of their own. Right? He says in Deuteronomy 7, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, because you're really awesome. 
And he didn't say that. And if you'd read the Old Testament up through Deuteronomy, you'd have seen plenty of times. They weren't very awesome. No, he says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were awesome. It was not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. You were the least awesomest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that he swore to Abraham, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the Pharaoh king of Egypt. And the same is true here. God was not reacting. God was acting. Does that make sense? He wasn't reacting to anything Zerubbabel had done. If anything, these people really hadn't done much at all. They sat there for 16 years not rebuilding the temple. He hadn't chosen Zerubbabel because anything he had done. It wasn't like God was the captain of his dodgeball team, right? In PE class out there picking the strongest and best kid first, picking the most awesomest kid first. That's not how God did this. No, I said, as John Calvin says, he says, in his commentary on this passage, for God does not here ascribe excellencies or merits to Zerubbabel when he says that he would hold him in great esteem. Have we seen one awesome thing Zerubbabel's done to deserve this? No. But he attributes this to his own choosing, his own election. And like God's choosing is humbling, isn't it? It's humbling to think God chose me not because of anything I've done, but in spite of everything I've done. It's humbling, but it's also revealing. Because by revealing not only what he would do in in renewing his kingdom, but also who he would do it through, a descendant of David, he was revealing yet another aspect of who he was. He was revealing that he is faithful. The intimate, imminent, faithful God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not only could do all that he said he would do, but he would do all he said he would do. He would fulfill every promise he had ever made because God is forever faithful. Amen? That is who he is. And by revealing what he would do and by revealing who he would do it through, God was renewing the hope of this languishing people. God's covenant with David, it had not been broken. The signet ring had been reforged. The royal line of David renewed the the root of the stump of Jesse. Promised by Isaiah, it looked like it had begun to sprout. But Zerubbabel never ascended to power. He never wore a crown. In fact, Zerubbabel just kind of fades into obscurity. Israel remained a vassal state under Persian control. And the people had to kind of begin to wonder and ask, like, God, is this some sort of sick joke you're playing on us? Like, you got our hopes all up, and now you're just going to crush them again? Like, maybe, maybe God's not sovereign after all. Maybe, maybe God bit off more than he can chew. Maybe he didn't realize how powerful the Persians were. Maybe, maybe God's not faithful. Maybe God just doesn't care. Maybe he's too busy. Maybe we messed up. We were undeserving of the promises God made. As time passed, their patience began to wear thin, and they thought, you know what? If God can't and God won't, then we will. They took matters into their own hands. Kind of like Abraham, who grew impatient, waiting on God for this promised heir, this promised son that would come. Right? They took matters into their own hands, doubting God's sovereignty, questioning his faithfulness. And as the Greeks rose to power and drove out the Persians, the people of Israel rose in revolt. And they were led by a man named Judas Maccabeus, the son of a rural priest, who he drove out the Greeks and they anointed him this warrior Messiah. 
Because he did what God could not do and what God would not do. He secured their independence. They were back. God didn't have this. They had this. And that lasted about a hot second. Lasted about as long as a Bears offensive drive these days. Israel went three and out. And the Romans invaded. And Israel was right back to where they started, languishing under another oppressive pagan power, doubting God's sovereignty, questioning his faithfulness. And I feel a little familiar, doesn't it? I, there's times that it feels like we're riding that same roller coaster of emotions as Israel. Our hope building as we go clickety-clack, clickety-clack up the hill, right? We, we know things are, things are going to be awesome. This is going to be great. This is going to be great. And then when we go down the hill, we leave that hope behind, don't we? And we hit the bottom. And when we hit the bottom, it just kind of feels like we're coasting along, languishing. It leaves us frustrated. leaves us without hope. And it leads us to respond in the same way that Israel did, taking matters into our own hands, taking up arms as they did, fulfilling God's promises for him because he is incapable, ushering in God's kingdom of peace with violence. We do this with our violent uh, action with our hands, right? Not just in inflicting pain on others, but also withholding justice from others. We do this with the violent emotions with our hearts, we do this with the violent speech, with our words. Man, especially on social media, we are violent, vile people. And we do it with the violence of the thoughts of our mind. And all of that, I think, reveals something about us yet again. I think it reveals our lack of trust in God. Because see, Jesus, he's called us to take up our cross daily and follow him, not to take up arms for him. Jesus called us to put away the sword, and to pursue peace, saying, blessed are the meek, for they're the ones that will inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the promised eternal kingdom of heaven, of God, and of everlasting peace. You know, it's interesting how we read a passage like this, focused so much on who God is and what God will do, when the attention is off of us almost entirely, it actually reveals so much of who we are, isn't it? It gives us this mirror of holiness that we look at ourselves into and through and we see how different from God we are. It reveals how we have so misunderstood God's promises, haven't we? I think so often our frustration with God comes not because he failed to fulfill the promises that came from the mouth of God, but because he failed to fill the promises that we put into the mouth of God. Go back at verse 23 again. Look at this. Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel was God's servant. He was appointed for a particular task, just not the task that they wanted. He was appointed to the task of renewing the royal line of David. Zerubbabel was not made into God's signet ring. There's a really important word there. He was made like a signet ring, one that is still being forged. He was not chosen to lead God's people as king. Nowhere in here does he say, you are my king right now, but to prepare the way for the king, for the king of kings. And so in the midst of this, hope is not lost. Hope is not lost for Israel. Hope is not lost for us because God is sovereign. God is faithful and he will fulfill every promise he ever made because all the promises of God, they find their yes not in Zerubbabel, but in Jesus. 
the true Messiah, the, the suffering servant, the, the, the shoot of Jesse, the son of David, Emmanuel, of God with us, the king of kings who will usher in this kingdom of everlasting peace, a kingdom inaugurated in his first advent and that will be fully consummated and his second when he returns. Nothing ever has and nothing ever will derail God's plan of redeeming creation. Nothing. The plan that God set out and promised in Genesis 3, a plan of renewing creation, will come to be as we progress from God's presence in the garden to his presence in a new city, the new Jerusalem. And so I'm going to say something to you I've probably not said very often. I guess I was wrong. It was bound to happen once, wasn't it? I was wrong. God is confronting us after all, isn't he? Because, see, God's confronting our lack of trust in him. And God is calling us to something. He's calling us to trust him. He's calling us to believe that he is who he says he is and that he will do everything that he has promised to do. He, he's calling us to trust that he is sovereign, that he can, and trust that he is faithful, that he will. And we express that trust in God, that trust in who he is and what he will do by living obediently to everything that he has commanded in his word and in light of everything that he has promised in his word. It's that simple. And yet sometimes I think we put this book away and these words away, living anticipation of, a, of another revelation from God while ignoring the revelation already given. Ignoring the promises that came from the mouth of God and instead inserting our own promises into the mouth of God, waiting for God to deliver the things he never promised. And the longer we wait, the more we languish. The more we doubt his sovereignty, the more we question his faithfulness. And what I pray that we see this morning here in God's word is that our renewed hope, this hope that we are so desperately in need of, it is found in who God is, what God has done, and what he has promised yet to do. And so let's not forget what God has promised to us. Promises that I pray will renew your hope. God promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. Do you believe that? He promised that Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he says, I will be with you, not for a couple of days, but always to the end of the age. And when he ascended, the Spirit descended. And now God dwells within us. He dwells among us. God promised that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Jesus, he, he died to forgive that sin that separated us from God. He died to reunite us to God. God promised that sin and death no longer have a hold over you. That Jesus, in his victorious resurrection, he has freed us from sin. He has defeated death. We will die, but we will not die a second death. When we pass on from this world, when we take our last breath, we will worship in the presence of God. And God promised that Jesus will return in his second advent. And when he does, we will experience the fullness of this renewed kingdom of everlasting peace as he wipes away every tear from our eyes, restoring all that is broken, righting every wrong, renewing creation. So I pray that this will renew your hope 
trusting in him, trusting that God is who he says he is and that he will do all that he's promised to do because our renewed hope is found in who God is and what God will do. God's got this, guys. God's got this. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.